The sermon is actually drawn from the psalm this morning, from Psalm 148, which we have sung many times, but it turns out I've never actually preached on, which I was extremely surprised by, but I haven't. There was a true story that I read some years ago, and Carmen has read this true story true, completely independent of me, and it was really kind of moving, but I have to admit to you, it's been so many years that I've forgotten a few of the details. I, I know the story, but I'm not exactly sure where it happened, and I'm not exactly sure who gave it. But it was a true story, and the core of it is this. I think it took place during the Great Chicago Fire. If not there, then it took place during something much like it. The entire city was falling down, and people were panicking. But it was the 1800s, and the man who was relating the story was somebody significant to us. If I remembered who he was, you'd go, oh yeah, that guy's a significant reformed guy. You know, he was, but I don't remember who. But he was in the middle of this raging inferno, and everybody was panicking and running in every direction. But as he surveyed this scene of chaos, he recognized one guy wasn't panicking. Now, the city was burning down. People are in grave danger. But there was this one guy who seemed to have his head on his shoulders, and he wasn't panicking. He seemed to be able to act and not react. And so he went over to him and he said, excuse me, sir, as only someone in the 1800s could say in the middle of a fire, uh, but sir, can I ask you, what is the chief end of man? And the not panicking man said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he said, ah, I knew you must be a catechism man. And that has always struck, I, I, I wish I had seen and heard that. I, I wish I had seen the buildings burning around them and, and these two very calm and collected men who are not afraid talking about the first question of the catechism. It, it was inspiring just reading it. But you can picture it. You can picture people in deadly fear of their lives panicking and yet there are two people here who have something that gives them the strength of character to keep their head and not panic and have a certain courage and even be able to have this conversation in the street while the city burns up. I knew you were a catechism, man. Uh, it's, it's interesting that that was the question that my storyteller chose to ask. Of course... It kind of is the catch response for the shorter catechism, so I guess it's natural. But still, you know, uh, you would be thinking, he would be thinking about some other doctrine than what is the chief end of man, but he wasn't. And if you really think about it, the fact that he was thinking about what is the chief end of man is really what would give you your courage and your backbone. Because the, the question really is, how do you win at this game of life? Life is brief. 
years ago when David, who happens to be here, my best friend, uh, was with us with a visit, and he was in Bible study, we were looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, David made a comment that I have never forgotten. He said, you know, most people are effectively playing a game of Monopoly. Uh, we're here, and we're not going to be here. It's guaranteed that we have this brief span of time, and we're trying to fill that span of time, and it's very much like playing a game of Monopoly. The, the game doesn't really matter, but it, 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 it fills our time, you know? But at the end of the day, we're going to pack away all the pieces back into the box, and it's going to be like it never was. Um, that, that speaks of what does it mean to really win the game of life? Why are we here? What are we doing that's significant? The average human being really does care about that question, and the fact that they can't answer that question really does bother them. Why am I here? What am I doing? Um, the answers come flying in, and if I were to go through them, it would be cliche, but the reason why it's cliche is because it's so true. You know, the world only has a few answers to give you about that, and none of them make a lick of sense when you actually analyze them. Um, you know, you're here for a brief time, so the goal is to become rich. Well, okay, but you leave, and then you don't have any of that stuff, so why is that the goal? Well, you should be famous. Okay, so people will know my name after I'm dead, but... Give it just a brief amount of time, and the only thing you're going to know is my name, and they're not going to know the real me, and give it enough time, and if I'm honestly famous, all I have become is kind of a symbol, and if I were to come back to life and see what people thought of me, I wouldn't recognize me, um, you know, and I'm dead anyway. Um, conquest, you know, make, make the world your target and, and win in the various games of conquest, whatever it is you may choose. Uh, gloriously triumph, so you can have a better tombstone, I guess. Uh, it, it, really is, it really is a question, what, what does it mean to win at the game of life? And the catechism's answer really is, what does it mean to win at the game of life? The, the only thing that really kind of matters, and if your life did it, it matters, is did you glorify God... Did you and do you, because if you did, you're going to be continually doing it, even though you're now dead, did you enjoy God's presence? Was the, was the, the wall of separation of hostility between you and God removed so that you lived a life where you walked with him and it was made right? The, the wrath of God was taken from you. And you got to enjoy his presence so that now, your spirit having returned to God, you're still enjoying his presence. The catechism begins with, how do you win the game of life? And everything else that kind of flows out of it is just kind of explaining that first answer. You know, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, well, what does that mean and how do you do it? Well, that's the rest of the catechism, you know. And uh, that, is, that is utterly profound. Now, if you were to look at the question of what does it mean to glorify God, and if we were to do a survey 
of the scripture building that, if that were the, the sermon, uh, the answers would again kind of be cliche, but they can't be cliche because they're scripture. Uh, each of them is utterly profound, even though we're very, very familiar with them. We would, we would look at things like praise, and we'd look at things like thanksgiving, and we would look at things like obedience. And in fact, as Reformed people, uh, we know that good deeds and obedience to God is absolutely rooted in not how do I earn my salvation, but how do I glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I mean, if you go to uh, the Ten Commandments, if you go to when God gave the very summary of all His moral law, it begins with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Now, why are those words there? They're not a command. The, the, the first command starts the next verse. Why does God say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of bondage? Well, he is reminding you, the Israelite, he is reminding you, the person in the Old Testament, he is reminding you, the person who is living thousands of years before Jesus walks on earth, I am the God of grace who has loved you first. I have reached to uh, slaves who really haven't been terribly faithful, and in fact, they're not going to be terribly faithful afterwards, but I have reached to you first. I have redeemed you out of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh, and this, of course, is a type and a shadow of the fact of what Jesus is going to objectively do thousands of years later. Uh, this is a promise that I will redeem you from the greater Pharaoh, from the greater Egypt. I'll deliver you from sin, depravity, death, and the devil. Oh, by the way, since I did that, have no other God but me. Make no false images. It's rooted in a response of gratitude. If you jump to the New Testament, if you jump to... Uh, the book of Romans. Romans is divided in such a way that in chapters 1 through 3, you find out your guilt before God. In chapters 4 through 11, you find out what the grace of God is doing. And then in chapters 12 to the end, you get all the commands that you're going to find in the book of Romans, the do this, don't do that, obey this, that sort of thing. But it begins with these words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So God's been merciful. And I am working on the fact that God has been merciful. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the word therefore harkens back to what's come before, and when you go looking for where that goes to, it really goes to everything that's been said in chapter 4 through 11. Since God has redeemed you by Christ, since everything about human history has tended to the elect's salvation, since the blood of Christ has been spilled and you have been redeemed from sin and death, uh, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're not earning a bit of that. 
But it's all been done for you. God has been gracious. He has been kind. He has been first. Therefore, be obedient. That's what it means, right? To glorify God. That's how you enjoy God, right? That is, that, that is so central to what it means to be a Reformed Christian, we almost take it for granted. I mean, that's, that, that's so much the truth that we don't even really talk about it much anymore, but that is one of the very beginnings. You might even call it one of the fundamentals. But that's our calling, but uh, it, it's personal, right? It's... Um, I mean, I'm called to glorify God, and I'm called to enjoy Him. But that is, a, that is an individualistic thing. Uh, it's really great that God has given that to me, to, to glorify God. It's really meaningful. But uh, it's not going to really matter to me if, say, the rest of creation does that. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's for me, and it's very private, um, God being glorified by everything else he's made, this creation that he's made, this creation that I have been inextricably placed in for a little while that I have to use. I'm in this creation, and it's here that I will pursue my calling. It's in this creation where I will find and win a wife. It's in this creation where I will raise children, it is in this creation where whatever I do, I'm going to do it with created things, and I'm to glorify God, but it doesn't really matter to me. It's not really my business if everything in creation should be glorifying God. It's just really very individualistic, right? I mean, you've been saved by the grace of God. You have had a debt paid that is greater than all the world could pay. You've had to have God the Son pay it. But now, this business about glorifying God, it's just kind of an individualistic thing. It doesn't have to be that big. It's it's really very private, right? That's the natural way to think about it. Because, you know, grace, I mean, it's meaningful, but it's, it's small. It's not that important, right? That's a ridiculous way to think. If you have been assigned your meaning in life, your purpose in life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, I mean, in this life, you're only going to enjoy him in the created order. You've got nowhere else to go. If that is who you really are and you have been transformed by the grace of God, how can you not look around you and say, I bet the Lord Christ lays claim to everything I'm looking at. I'm betting the Lord Christ, by virtue of having made it, wants it to glorify him. That's probably its purpose, too. And since I live in this world and manipulate the elements of this world, maybe God has called me to glorify him with literally everything in creation, and my heart should cry out in its deep gratitude, let 
everything I see, let everything I touch, everything, everything, everything glorify God. It's not private. It's not just here. It's actually God has given me the world to glorify him with. And uh, Christ has this audacity in Scripture to literally claim to be king of creation. And even though we're told at the end of 1 John that, that the world is under the sway of the devil, there is nothing in Scripture that says, now that's legitimate and that's okay. Uh, you, you might not, you, you might seriously not believe this one, but there is a doctrine very prevalent in uh, theological circles called radical two-kingdom theology, which basically says Jesus Christ has a kingdom, that kingdom is the church, the world is in no sense Christ's kingdom, and so uh, when you are the church, when you come together, you do churchy things because that's the kingdom of God. But when you go out into the world, you're out in the devil's kingdom, and God's okay with that. That's his kingdom, and uh, you know, that really doesn't, that, that's not important to us. Uh, we're God's citizens, but this is the kingdom. It's just this tiny little place. Uh, does, does that sound biblical to you? There's a huge amount of the world, of the church, of God's people, who have bought into that, but... There is not one breath of scripture that seems to say, you know, it, it's okay that the, the kingdoms of the world, which shall become the kingdoms of our Christ and of his God, it, it's okay that uh, they're the devils. We don't need to challenge that. Uh, it's okay that there's this secular world, um, you know, we don't have to worry about that. We're not going to glorify God with that. Um, you know, Christ will deal with that at the end of time. Um, I'm going to be private and glorify God, but, uh, you know, it's okay the world doesn't. It's not okay at all. A redeemed person cries out, let all of creation glorify God. All of it, all of it, all of it. Welcome to Psalm 148. We've sung it so many times, you know how it works. It's a lot like, uh, some of you will have seen this, back in the 80s, there was one of those really terrible videos that they created for school children to watch in science class, and it starts off with a picture of a woman lying on a beach, and then it moves up away from her, and it goes into space. And as it moves away from her, everything gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you get further from the world, and you see planets, and then you see suns, and then you see whole galaxies, and then it comes back down to her, and then it goes even further. It goes into uh, atoms and quarks and all that, and so you've gone all the way up as you can go, and then you go all the way down as you can go. And the science video is trying to show you that everything big and everything small is very similar, and there's an amazing glory there. I don't know if any of you saw that in school or not, but uh, the psalm kind of does that. The psalm goes up into the heavens. It goes as high into the heavens as it can go, and then it descends to the earth, and it goes kind of as deep as it can go. It goes into the the caves, it goes into the oceans, but you've gone way high, you've gone way low, 
And uh, rather than uh, it being a science image, it's a matter of glorifying God. As you go high and as you go low, there is a repeated command. And what is that command? Well, uh, it, it's stated in a couple different ways, but they're all effectively synonymous. Um, praise the Lord. How many times is that command given in Psalm 148? Uh, quite a number. Starts with it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Uh, you praise the Lord in verse 7. You uh, praise the Lord at the end of the psalm. There is a reference to that command where it slightly is abbreviated, where it says, um, praise him, which is reminding you to praise the Lord. Uh, and this is many, many times. And then there is, let them praise the name of the Lord. And that is given twice. But the psalmist lays hold of every element of God's created order and by the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't ask, commands, praise the Lord. You glorify God by praise and thanksgiving and obedience. The psalmist looks at the heavens and shouts, praise the Lord. The psalmist looks at the depths of the earth and he shouts, praise the Lord. He expresses a desire when he says, let them praise the name of the Lord. What, what does that language convey? Well, it's building on the command and it's speaking about the desire of the worshiper's heart he looks at these things and he desires that they glorify God. It is his goal that they glorify God. It is his will and intent that they glorify God. There is nothing in heaven and earth that the psalmist kind of shrugs and goes, you know, it doesn't really matter if it glorifies God. Rather, the Spirit through him has grabbed his heart and he desires, with, with a passionate desire, that everything glorify God. And the, the, the structure of the psalm is basically commanding creation to do that and then giving reasons for why it would do that and then repeating it from the other side and doing the same thing and finally coming to a point down at the end, but this is, this is his deep will. And let's, let's walk with him. He takes us into the heavens, and in the heavens, he says, uh, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. And there is a, a subtle difference between the two lines, the psalmist has told us that in the, the highest of heavens, he desires God to be praised there, praise him in the heights. But he also desires that that praise bleed out of there. Praise him from the heavens. 
So the psalmist looks at the, the highest order of all creation, the angelic beings and the armies of God and all the spirits that those are, these beings that if God grants that we see them, we fall over as if dead because the glory just overwhelms us. And the spirit lays hold of us and we cry to them, glorify God up in the heavens where you are and glorify him so much that your praise and your worship and your adoration bleed down onto the earth. Let us hear the sound of your worship. Angels and hosts, let it, let it ring so loud that it stirs our own spirits, drowning down. Let it pass the sun, moon, and stars, and as it comes down through them, let them join the, uh, the strain too. Let the sun give glory to God. Let the moon give glory to God. All the stars, you guys join in with the angels and let there be amazing praise of God. Waters underneath the star moon and, and, and you know, under the heavens, but still way high above us. So we've gone from the highest heavens to the heavens to space. And now we're in the clouds that drop rain uh, we're moving downward, but it's still gloriously high. Uh, you clouds of water, give praise to God. You, you beings that are sentient and can worship him with your wills, you created things that, that give glory to him by your order and your, your existence. And the very fact that everything works together in perfect order, all of you praise God. And there's a reason for that. In verse 5 and 6, we have our first step out where the psalmist says, now it is reasonable and it is only right in a reasonable service to do this. Verse 5 and 6 read, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever he made a decree which shall not pass away. Uh, those two verses, if you meditate upon them, there's an entire worldview there. It is the belief that God literally made everything and he commanded them into existence. So the psalmist is using the same kind of language as the book of Genesis. God created them by stating them into existence, and he has established their order and their pattern, and he is preserving them so they don't pass away. The psalmist turns to everything in the heavens and says, you are a created thing, you have your origin in God, and there is utter hope and assurance in the fact that you're created because God gave you a law to fulfill, you move orderly and properly like a well-oiled machine, which you are because God has created you, and you will not just kind of accidentally pass away because God is preserving you. Uh, that worldview is the worldview of the creationist. And the psalmist unabashedly lays hold of rock-ribbed, concrete thinking, backwards, superstitious creationism 
and has no fear whatsoever, saying, this is absolutely the truth, and you should give glory to God because you are created, preserved, and ordered. There's a reason why the world attacks the doctrine of God's creation. It doesn't have anything to do with science. Nothing. The reason why the world attacks the doctrine of creationism is because the the, the very essence of everything that God is doing in creation is rooted in the fact he created it. The... uh, the worldview that is embraced by the world is everything just kind of came out of nothing and it's not ordered and it's not preserved and you know it's actually all very chaotic and it only kind of looks like order and there could be a Lord's Day where at the end of the Lord's Day people come in wondering where we are and we're all laying dead on the floor because it turns out that all the air molecules in the room jumped into the corner just chaotically because there's not order, and we all suffocated, and nobody will know why, because nothing's preserving the world. The world could end tomorrow, uh, and it's not created. It doesn't have any meaning. That is utterly repugnant to the Word of God, and the Scriptures place the reason for glorifying God in creation. It is not just the believer who is given the moral imperative to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is every scrap of his creation for the very fact it's created. The worldling doesn't want to do it, and that's why he invents a totally different cosmology, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have the imperative that he should do it. In fact, the very fact he feels it in his heart is why he wants to get away from it. That is why there is such vehemency to attack the doctrine of creation. Well, the psalmist lays hold of that very truth, and he shouts it to the heavens, and then he turns to the earth, and he takes us um, to the various things of the earth, and he doesn't start with praise the Lord in the earth. He, He begins with praise the Lord from the earth, And there's a real reason for that, I think, because the glory of God coming down from the heavens is kind of a given. The the angels and the hosts of God are going to praise him. The sun, moon, and stars are praising him, whether we know it or not. They're praising him by their order, their preservation. Um, The rain clouds are praising him because they show God's handiwork. But when you get down to earth, uh, there is some questionable elements on earth whether they will praise God or not. And God is calling earth to join with the praise that's coming down. Praise God from the earth. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you just barely know him, that's what you're going to know about him. That's what he's famous for. But he wrote a lot of other things, and in fact, he even wrote another fantasy series. Uh, It was his science fiction series, and if you haven't read it, you really are doing yourself a disservice. It's some of the best things you're going to read. The very first book in that series is called From Out of the Silent Planet. 
And the, the meaning of the phrase, what, once you begin to see what's happening in the novel, it turns out that all of, cre- all of the heavens, all of the universe, is not fallen, it's not rebellious to God, but there's this tiny little speck of creation where fallenness has happened, and all of the universe is literally glorifying God and praising Him at the top of its volume, but in this little blue-green planet speck, nothing's coming out of it. It's silent there, and that's the effect of sin. You can see that it's sinful, you can see that it's cursed, because you can't hear anything from it. It's supposed to be joining in the praise just like all the rest of creation, but it's not. Well, the psalmist says to the earth, let's have some praise out of the earth. Let's glorify God from the earth. Uh, Really big sea creatures that you should be afraid of, which is pretty much the literal translation of the Hebrew word. You monstrous beings in the water, you praise God. Um, in fact, you depths that you, those monsters are swimming in, you praise God too. Um, things that are hot and things that are cold, things that are of the elements of the air, of fire, and of water, uh, all of you things, you join in the cosmic praise and you glorify God. Um, you, by the way, are fulfilling his word. And there, um, you see the psalmist is leading us to where his word might not be being fulfilled. Just like in the heavens, this is kind of a given, um, fire and water, mountains, uh, the creatures, even the big ones that scare us, the psalmist says all that stuff is fulfilling his word. So if obedience is part of glorifying God, they got it down. Now, there are things on this earth that are doing what they didn't do when they were created. When the world was created, nothing died and nothing was carnivorous. Uh, Cats didn't toy with mice and then eat them. Uh, There wasn't a worm in Africa that literally subsists by eating eyeballs. That, That didn't happen. But nonetheless, even though those things do happen now, uh, they happen because God has commanded it to happen. The, the way the scripture describes creation is not fallen. It uses the term frustrated. If you go to Romans and you look at chapters 8 and around those parts, the Apostle Paul says creation is frustrated. It doesn't do what God originally designed it to do, but it is still doing what God commanded it to And that makes it different than human beings. Um, You know, uh, a bear might eat a jogger, but it's not a moral evil for the bear to do that. The bear is being bear, and God designed the bear. Um, It's not what it was. It's frustrated, but it's not sinful. You human beings, you've been frustrated. Oh, and you're also fallen. So... From a certain moral point of view, when God looks at us and looks at our pet dog, uh, God says, that's a great dog, because we're further down than the dog. So these things fulfill God's word, even now. Uh, The cattle fulfills his word. 
the, the, the fowls, the, the animals that, that creep along going in all fours or being on all fours. It's kind of hard to know how to translate it. But, but all the creatures, the psalmist gathers them up and says, you guys glorify God, although you're not really having a hard time. Uh, you're fulfilling his word. Fruitful trees and trees that don't produce fruit but, but do other things. The, the words are trees that give us food and trees that we can build stuff out of. All of you, you're fulfilling God's word. You're still being productive. But join in the, the glorifying of God. Uh, mountains, where pagans build their temples and they think that they're holy to the gods. You mountains give glory to God. Again, you're not having a problem with it. It is those sinful people who put those temples up there. But mountains join in the worship of God. By the way, uh, that, that way of thinking about mountains uh, comes out in the Psalms a couple times. In a fairly famous psalm, in Psalm 121, the beginning is this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help? Well, why is the psalmist looking to the top of hills to get help? Well, it's because in the pagan world, that's where you put your temple. It's closest to the gods. And so the psalmist pictures men standing around going, there's a temple to that God over there, and there's a temple to that God over there. Oh, there's one over there. Which one of these hills will I look to? And then the psalmist says, I'm not going to look at any of them. From whence comes my help? Well, um, my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So there we have the doctrine of creation again. Uh, I'm not going to look at any of those temples. I'm not going to look to any of those pagan gods. God made heaven and earth, and we're going to look to him. Uh, so when, when Psalm 148 says, mountains join in the praise of God, uh, all the pagans standing around going, what do you mean? Well, it means your hill, which you think is glorifying the, the demons, actually glorifies God. And I'm really calling on it to do it, but it's not got a problem. Um, cattle, we, we went through that. And then after he has taken us into the depths, we've gone low, then he lays hold of mankind. So we come after the creatures that are creeping. But the psalmist turns in verse 11 and 12 to all humanity. And again, it's not just the people of God, it's everyone. In verse 11 and 12, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. So the psalmist has an agenda, and he's been working his way to humanity, but we're still not at the tip of the spear. But we're kind of getting close, and the psalmist says, let all mankind join in the praise, and here's where the problem is. Here's where the silence of the silent planet is. There are human beings who are not joining in the praise. They really should. And every type and condition of man should. Whether they're little children, whether they're old people, whether they are the 1%, the kings of the earth, whether they are the peasants that are being stepped on, it doesn't really matter. 
all humanity should join in the praise of the Lord. And here we have the second cutout for giving a reason. Why should they and all things on earth praise him? Well, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heavens. That's the first reason. Uh, The first reason is it's self-evident. Everything that the world says to you, this is how you win the game of life, isn't exalted. Everything that you could put up as the ultimate value isn't the value. The only thing that creation exalts really, eternally, and truly, and objectively is the God that made it. So... Uh, Why should everything glorify God? Well, it wouldn't be here if he didn't. It's rooted in the creation, just like in the first set of answers. There's a purpose why everything exists. It's made to do this. You're made to do this. You're not necessarily made to be the most popular person. You're not made to win friends and influence people. You're not made to become a tycoon. You're not made to win at your conquest. All of those things may be assigned to you, but that's not why you're designed. The world praises God by nature. That's what it's designed to do, and you're part of it. Whether you're an angry atheist, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you've never really thought about it, that's what the box says you're designed to do. It's self-evident. But here he gives one more reason. As we move on past that, he says, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints. That's actually new. Does that remind you of anything you've heard fairly recently? Last Lord's Day, I preached from Psalm 47, And I pointed out that Psalm 47 was calling upon all the earth to praise God because God had crushed them under his feet and conquered them. He had brought them by the the violent power of his will into his kingdom. And most people don't praise God for getting crushed. But in this case, it's a really good idea Because the the arrows of God hit you in the heart and kill you, but they bring you back to life, and you're now a subject. Um, I'm cheating. I'm getting to preach the same sermon twice. Because Psalm 48 does the exact same thing. The psalmist calls upon all the people of the earth to praise God because he has exalted the horn of his people Israel. The horn of his people Israel is the king. That's a reference to the king of Israel And the king of Israel, ultimately and eternally, is Jesus Christ. Most people don't praise anyone for conquering them. But Psalm 148 goes to the same place. God will elevate the true king, and all of the earth should praise him because he does that. This is a messianic reference. This is a reference to what God is going to do in Christ. Let all the earth... Praise God. When God brings judgment in the judgment day, you know what's one of the most amazing things that happens? The earth is still here. You read in 2 Peter that he is going to break it down to its very base elements. 
he is going to separate every element from every element, and that sounds like the uttermost destruction, but then he puts it all back together, and there is a heaven and an earth. So even though it's been the silent planet, God preserves it. He preserves his creation. Uh, Why does he do that? He does it because it belongs to Christ. So the very fact the earth gets to continue eternally, that seems like a good reason to praise God if you happen to be the earth or anyone in it. God will glorify himself. He will establish the horn of Israel. Let the world praise and glorify God. Uh, the, The only things that need to praise and glorify God are those things that God will preserve for eternity that are created by him. So if there is anything not created by God or that will not continue for eternity, they don't have to worry about it. The only thing is you can't find anything that that's not true of. The psalmist lays hold of all creation, and he calls us to call upon all creation to glorify him. Um, Separation of church and state? Well, maybe, but no separation of Christ and state. No separation of Christ and culture, no separation of Christ and school, no separation of Christ and politeness, no separation of Christ from any aspect of creation. He made it all, and the person who knows that they are created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, they can't rest until all creation is praising Him. And that's where we end. The horn of Israel is the king of Israel, and the psalmist points out the true Israel of God who is in the horn. Uh, They are the people close to him. And then it ends with the command, praise the Lord, but in context, it's now to us. The psalmist has uh, grabbed the whole world, but his last statement is to us. I mean, we're to call upon the world to glorify and enjoy God. Uh, But honestly, we're the people near to him, so it's kind of got to start here. They're not going to do it if we don't start. And so the psalm ends with, you people who belong to Christ, you start the refrain. If you sing, that'll be the beginning. You all praise the Lord. There is no private Christianity. And there is nothing that Christ does not own. Um, Nothing. Nada. Nothing. Christ lays hold of it all. The king of Israel says, this is mine. And a true religion is not satisfied with a compartmentalized life. Doesn't exist. Christ is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. That's not mine. I'm stealing it from Lewis again, but it's a good way to end this. Um, Praise the Lord in heaven, earth, everywhere. Praise the Lord as a command because he is its creator and Christ will be its king.